Welcome to Testers Island Discs, your most musical guide to software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Testers Island. It's 2022, at least if you're listening to this episode within the first year of it coming out. And today my special guest for the start of the year is Simon Rigler. Simon's had a career spent wearing many different hats. He's been a business SME, he's been a test analyst, a test manager, a line manager, a scrum master, and a delivery manager. That's not even the full list. With all those jobs, he first got into testing in the mid-2000s while he was living in New Zealand. And in 2013, he moved to Brighton, where he's now working for IQVIA and recently shifted from being their program delivery manager to being their head of QA. Somehow within there, he's got some free time as well, where he finds himself being a keen runner and a cruciverbalist, which means a crossword enthusiast. Cruciverbalist would be an excellent crossword clue, actually. And he's into many sports, including following AFC Bournemouth, Brighton's South Coast rivals. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thank you, Neil, and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. We are recording this in the first week of January. What's, what's the statute of limitations, do you think? On when, when's the latest you can, you can, you're allowed to say Happy New Year? <laughs> I haven't actually gone back to work yet, so I, we've, we've still got some Christmas lights up and things and a tree. So I, at the moment, I definitely think it's fair game. Um, <laughs> I go back to work next week, perhaps then it's not fair game. Yeah, well, I, th- I think if, if it's someone you know and recognise and who you've not seen since the New Year, I think you can probably get away with it for quite a long time. True. Probably might be pushing it but uh yeah uh, we are very much in the new year and sadly of course 2022 is starting much the same as 2021 and much the same as a lot of 2020 was for us um how, how has lockdown and pandemic life treated you yeah it just keeps going on and on doesn't it um like many uh, in our industry and others working from home has been something of a phenomenon i suppose um you know, looking at it from that aspect, I've, I've uh, constantly exploring whether whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for me personally and my my team and and my colleagues. Um, so you know, I've got used to working in my little office room in our house in in Worthing near Brighton, um, and you know, there's a bit of Groundhog Day and all of that. Uh, probably watch way too much Netflix and other other streaming services. Um, played a lot of music as well, though, which is timely <laughs> for this. Um, and trying to get that whole work-life balance thing, you know, that discipline where you actually say, "Well, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to finish today at this point," rather than just, uh, you know, you're still in your office or you're still in the in the house where your office is um, doing some exercise. Trying to, you know, uh, work out those boundaries and keep yourself healthy, I suppose. But I can't yeah. wait till it's truly over. That's for sure. Yeah, I think it's been going on so long now that anything that we've gotten into over lockdown, we've now also had time to fall out of love with. Like I've I've taken up hobbies and given them up in the last two years. Sure. Um, yeah. It's also also worth noting, ironically, that I actually I had COVID myself over Christmas. Um, it was really weird because I had tonsillitis at the start of December. I posted a tweet of like, "This is why I'm recording this month's episode late because you can't. I haven't got a voice." And I managed to record the episode in the two days between my voice getting better from tonsillitis and COVID hitting me uh, relatively badly. I mean, that's bedridden for a few days um you know there are people who've had worse certainly yeah um, i'm sorry I, to hear that though i'm glad you're feeling better i i'm very very glad to be basically back to normal now um <laughs> you, people will know that i'm a, a keen peloton enthusiast and it's very noticeable because you get a a score mm. when you do a ride on the peloton bike like a score out of you know four or five hundred i'm probably still at least 20 percent off the mark of what i was doing at last the end of last year so like my lungs 
have been hit hard and it's, it's that sort of thing that makes you realize what's going on but um i guess for yourself being on the south coast and in worthing brighton area that, that would have been quite a nice place to be during the, the harsh lockdowns when you're only allowed out once a day get a bit of sea air i guess yes i would say so um uh, you know, to some degree, it may not matter too much where you are. Um, but yes, as a keen runner as well, um, I did try to get out to run um, and I'm about a mile away from the coast. So it's quite an easy, easy run down there. Um, and it is good for the soul. I, I've lived by the sea most of my life in one place or another. So um, that 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 certainly was, was good for me. Um, I do miss Brighton, though. Uh, for those that don't know Worthing too well, you know, it's a smaller version of Brighton, much smaller uh, certainly not so so um, uh, lively, I guess. Um, you know, with with pubs and and the rest, um, and just with atmosphere, I think. Uh, so yes, I haven't been into Brighton an, an awful lot uh, since it all kicked off. A few times, increasingly last year, um, but uh, yes, generally is yes, a good place to be. Yeah, I massively miss Brighton as well. Thankfully, I've now got some more excuses to go back there. The company that I've just started working for, Elucidat, are based in Brighton, although I'm fully remote permanently. Uh, so I was down there just before Christmas, um, unrelated to catching COVID. Uh, but I was going to say, it's all happening for you. Yeah, <laughs> it was, a, it was a, a very, very rushed few days where I went down to Brighton from Manchester to meet the team. Then I had to drive back from Brighton to Cambridge the next day uh, to pick up my family because we were going to go and meet, um, have, basically have a very early Christmas because we were worried there was going to be a lockdown. So we're like, we'll do Christmas early. And it was a good job we did because then we got stuck in isolation over Christmas <laughs> of stupid COVID. So uh, yes, but uh, the Brighton days are, are good ones. Uh, and running in Brighton as well, obviously, that's something uh, historically we've done at Test Bash. There's been the Test Bash. I joined the a free few Test of Bash run. Yeah. Yes. And uh, also one, one of my favourite music videos uh, is filmed on Brighton Seafront by, by Jack Pignate, a song called Second Minute or Hour, which the video is just a one shot, a one take of him running down the Brighton seafront, uh, singing the song as he goes. Uh, it's, it's a it's a fairly it's a fair brisk pace he takes as well. He accelerates towards the end. He's uh, he's got some lungs on him, but I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yes, please do. That's a bit like the sort of park run route for Hove Promenade. Yeah. So uh, I remember it well. <laughs> well, we'll go from uh, exciting geographical talk into actually talking about testing in the next section. But first of all, let's remind everyone uh, why you're here. You've been marooned on the Tesla Desert Island, the first victim of 2022. But you've been allowed to bring five songs with you that best represent either your favourite music or just things that are important to you in your life. And what's the first song that you brought with you today, Simon? Uh, so I have to say, this is a real treat to be on here. Um, I, I love Desert Island Discs. Um, I probably, that's probably one of the things I've played a lot during lockdown, but also Tester's Island Discs. Um, one of your previous guests, James Thomas, um, put me onto this probably a year and a bit ago. Um, so I've been playing a lot of these over the last 12 months or so. Um, a little bit of context around this song. I'll try not to go on too long, but this, this song really, the first one, um, uh, I think every song I've got represents quite a few things. Um, I do love music. There's a lot of songs I could have chosen. So each each of these is taking a lot of responsibility one way <laughs> or another. Uh, this first one um, really represents getting into music, you know, for the first time, like discovering it as a kid. Um, I got into music in late 1983, early 84, and I was seven. So you can work out my age from that. Um, uh, my mum had a great music collection and she used to listen to the charts all the time on radio one and uh so i definitely loved that i i loved hearing all the rundown i loved the kind of geeky sort of plotting out how the records were doing and how many weeks they were spending in the charts all that stuff um 
But I do think also it was a fantastic time to get into music. And maybe everyone thinks that, however old they are. But, um, you know, at that time, Frankie Goes to Hollywood was just kicking off. Madonna, Prince, um, you know, you had these megastars at the height of their fame or maybe in the second wind, like David Bowie, Queen. Um, yeah, yeah a, few, uh, a few that I've discovered just a little bit too late, like like just too late for me to see live, really. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. That's true, true for me um, as well. Um, so I, I grew up with all this great pop music. And at that time, my mum was buying tapes. It was that kind of era just before CDs kicked off um, in the mainstream. Um, so I was just playing loads of her stuff. But she was buying things like Lionel Richie and all these pop things um, that I, I really liked um, and, and Queen of Bowie and things. But in amongst all that... Um, she also had this tape that was just a home recording. I think she taped it off, off her brother, my uncle, of Kraftwerk. And um, I played this a lot, age seven, just in amongst everything else. You know, it might be Shaken Stevens one minute, and I went <laughs> on to Kraftwerk, um, and then back to level 42 or something. But I, I loved this Kraftwerk tape, and I didn't think anything of it, um, of being anything different. And... Um, I think because of the era where I was growing up, I loved a lot of synth music. And then as I got older um, and really got into music and sort of moved out of the pop charts and wasn't really loving the, the top 40 anymore, you know, I discovered that Kraft were, were kind of, you know, known as the, the, the Beatles of electronic music. And um, I then discovered that that tape I had was, or my mum had, was the Man Machine album. And that, uh, you know, most of their albums are, are um, I may be biased, but regarded as classics and most bands that have, have gone after them uh, in, in the synth world and electronic music owe quite a debt to Kraftwerk. I, I could go on about them forever, really. <laughs> um, I've seen them live twice, and um, one of those was in Auckland, but the second one was in Brighton in um, 2017, I think it was. Yeah, it must have been. Um and this is quite pivotal for me as well in, in, a, in a way that's not so much about craft, but they just happened to be there at the time. Um, I, I have bad hearing and I um, made the choice to, to get hearing aids around that time, some pretty expensive, fancy ones. Um, and it was about two weeks before that craft work gig. And this, this is quite a big life event for me to do that. Um, you know, maybe we'll talk about this at, at another point, but uh, you know, it's a big, big impact on my my career as well, and my my job. Um, but going to that Kraftwerk gig, the first thing where I'd been around somewhere wearing these hearing aids, and uh, it was it was a gig at the Brighton Centre, and I could hear things that I never thought I'd ever been able to hear before. Mm. Uh, it was it was genuinely life changing, and as an added bonus. Um, I heard people in the audience shouting out to the to to the gig, um, you know, turn the music up because it was quite low, quite the volume was quite low. I could hear it really well, um, <laughs> which you know really took off some of my apprehension about uh, wearing hearing aids, age forty or something. Um, so I remember that at that gig, um, the track I've chosen is Space Lab. Um, I do remember that at that gig because I could hear it so brilliantly and, and it's such a great record i love that as, as a seven-year-old and i still love it now and um i do remember as well going to a new a, a new year's eve gig um at alexandra palace and uh, new order were one of the headline acts there and they played this song as one of their warm-up songs i, I think it just 
you know, it sounded, it came out in 1978 and it just sounded so ahead of its time, um, even now, to be honest. That's a first appearance on the podcast playlist for Craftwork with Space Lab. Now, Simon, I went through at the beginning a very, very long list of, of jobs that you've done over uh, your career. Um, were you just indecisive to begin with? What was it eventually that led you into becoming a tester for the first time? <laughs> no, it, when you led, read that list out, it, it did make <laughs> me sound like what they'd call a journeyman in football. Well, it came really... Um, so I, I graduated from Southampton University um in, with maths degree, um, and after uni, um, my first job was in pensions in Bournemouth, which is essentially my hometown. I grew up in the New Forest, but that was the biggest town nearby. Um, I did this pensions analyst role for several years, and I'll, I'll say now that there are some hallmarks there. I don't know if it's because I started out with that, um, but there are some hallmarks that um, are quite similar uh, to software projects. Hmm. I, I was on a uh, a, a government-led review of, of um, private pensions that all providers in the UK had to do and um, for all of their policyholders. And it was essentially a very large project, very time-based, you know, lots of targets and milestones and things like that, quite pressured. And um, it was very analytical. And all of those things are things that I really enjoyed right from the get-go. And, you know, I respond well to timelines and pressures and targets and things. Um, several years in, I, I'd um, moved around a couple of times, including a few months traveling. I think I had a midlife crisis at the age of 22 and thought, <laughs> oh, wow, I, if, I, if I stay here, I could be here till I retire. Um, so that was my first uh, spell in New Zealand, amongst other places. But uh, yes, um, several years after all of that, I had the chance to go back to Bournemouth um, and back to my old company. But this time, the, the role was essentially as a temp, but working on an IT project. Um, so this may be familiar to other people that, you know, falling into testing. I fell into it through a business secondment, really. Um, they wanted me for my pensions knowledge. Um, and I also knew that I was probably going to go traveling in about nine months' time. So this, for me, was just a temp job. And I thought it would be really cruisy that they just asked me questions about money purchase, uh, pension schemes and stuff like that, and it would be easy. But what I, when I arrived, I remember my first day, um, I, I, I was being told terms like SIT, um, systems integration testing, and UAT. Um, I saw these charts on the wall of, of defect counts, and I thought I'd be set up with some pension software, but they were setting me up with an Oracle database and test director um, access. So I think that became quality center. Um, and I saw this you know, three bits of A3 plastered together on a wall with this great big long timeline and all these little milestones of phase ones and twos and things. I, I really wasn't expecting this. Um, and I remember being exhausted after my first day. I didn't know anything. Um, and it that those eight months there proved to be so important because I then went traveling 
and grew. Uh, I, I went to New Zealand for a, a year, having liked it before, uh, and I was going to come back just after I was age 30. But I ended up staying for nine years, and now I have dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to get a testing job in New Zealand, really off the back of that eight months temping in Bournemouth. Um, so it, it, it went from one thing to another there. But, I, you know, I definitely took it seriously in New Zealand. And um, I worked for Westpac Bank, so, you know, quite a big testing group. Um, and, uh, yeah, just loved it, really. So um, I went from, from from role to role over there. Um, but, yes, it, I suppose I sort of fell into it. But I would say there are some similarities between the old and the new in terms of, you know, pensions and and IT in terms of the nature of the work. Um, as I say, very, I, I do love projects. That, that's still true today. Yeah. I think it's, it's a common theme that runs through everybody who's been on the podcast is that they are obviously have a passion for testing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be taking their time out to come and talk about testing in their in their free time. But there are very few direct routes into testing. I, I think your, your sounds as, as similar as, as many others. Uh, and as you say, your career has then taken you on to other roles, which are presumably, uh, you know, either more senior or, you know, a bit further up in the business. But you've now come back round to become head of QA again. What, what's brought you back into the fold? Yeah, this this is interesting. Um, it, I, I don't know if this has anything to do with lockdown and having time to reflect, but um, essentially, as as you mentioned at the beginning, I've been with with IQVIA, uh, or I'm work, working with IQVIA. I've been there for several years. Um, I've been fortunate enough to try uh, a few different roles with them, um, and over the last couple of years, almost as lockdown was starting, I was the program manager for a a particular project, um, which is quite an intense piece, and it involves sort of two or three of my scrum teams. I used to manage several scrum teams within a program. And um, between some resignations and between, I don't know, perhaps an underestimation of how big the project would be, particularly from a testing angle, I ended up, I was quite lucky, I suppose, uh, I, I maybe created my own luck. I I started helping out with testing, and some of this was postman, some of this was sort of manual, some of it was strategy. Um, but I did a lot of extra hours. I sort of did almost two roles at the same time. Um, no one asked me to do it, but I did it. Uh, it. It really did cement for me how much I enjoy everything testing. <laughs> um, and really, I'm very grateful to have tried a different role, but my heart mm. is very much in the QA slash testing space. And uh, it became quite clear to me last year that that's where I wanted to be. And fortunately, something opened up in IQVIA that uh, allowed me to apply and be successful for mm. that role. Yeah, I think you're the perfect illustration. There are opportunities for testers to, to move into other parts of the business, but also if your heart is with testing, then that's that's where it is. And uh, uh, I, you know, without our two respective career paths may have gone in different directions, but we've both now found ourselves in effectively the same role. I've just started a, a head of quality role uh, for the first time in my career. Um, so basically a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you today are going to be tapping you for knowledge that will, will help me in my new job. Uh, the first one of which is, is going to be being the head of QA. Doesn't that, um, do you, you mentioned your passion for testing. Are you itching to get hands-on with the product? Is it difficult for you to, you know, learn to delegate and say, actually, you know, I need to take a step back. I'm talking bigger picture stuff right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds amazing and uncanny. That it sounds like we're both starting these roles very much at the same time as yeah. well. Like I literally start mine when I go back next Monday. 
Um, so that's that's incredible. Um, yes, there there will be that challenge. I think I was asked that in my interview even. Um, uh, I think I'm very fortunate. In, uh, you know, we we work a lot in agile development. I I do genuinely think that that helps that um, the the way our teams are, are set up and our our programs. Um, it does. It, it's always invited for me an opportunity to to be a bit more hands on. Um, but not too much so. Uh, I, I say that now. We'll see when we talk, <laughs> if we ever talk again next year, uh, how that works out for me. But um, I do think I have, you know, a, a good good team around me. One thing I do love about the the agile setup is, um, you know, you've talked on these on these shows before so much about whole team approach and mm. whole team approach to quality. I, I'm such an advocate for that. I. I you know, I, I am the head of quality assurance. I don't like using the QA term like many, many testers do not. Um, I tend to say head of QA and testing. So I sort of made up my own title within my company. I, but I, w- I was the same. I, I, I literally, I, I was given the chance to shape my own role and also title it myself. So uh, yeah, that's why I chose, chose head of quality. We're going to talk more in the next section about collaboration uh, and how you work across different disciplines, which is something that you spoke about recently at test.bash. But before that, let's hear about your second song choice. Okay, so the second song, um, I won't do such a big intro here. This is uh, this is a New Zealand band. So this is the Phoenix Foundation and a track called Bright Grey. This almost didn't make the cut. Choosing five songs is so hard. Um, but it, it, it just seemed criminal if, if I didn't include a New Zealand song on this list because um, choosing to live there for nine years was such a great life choice. And um, I, lot, I saw a lot of live music there and had a lot of fun and uh, the music scene was great. I was in Wellington, particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phoenix Foundation are a, um, a Wellington band. I saw them in Queenstown first when I was learning to snowboard when I first got there. And uh, I think the little clip in the newspaper advertising the gig said um, that their influences were Pavement and the Pixies. And they're two of my all-time favorite bands. So I knew that I would like the Phoenix Foundation. I've seen them heaps. Um, so for those that don't know them, which is probably many, um, I, I'd love you to check them out. That was the sounds of the Phoenix Foundation from New Zealand with their song Bright Grey. Now, Simon, both you and I spoke recently at Test.Bash. I was one of the first speakers of the day and you were one of the final ones giving a 99 second talk where you were praising the importance of collaboration across disciplines. That must be something that comes naturally to you as someone who has worked in so many roles. It must be very easy for you to slip into the mindset of what different parts of the business want, for example. Um, yeah, so it, it was... Um... The inspiration for that talk was um, a particular um, moment where somebody said to me, uh, someone, a, a colleague, I won't name names, of course, but uh, who said, oh, now you're a program manager. Uh, so this was before I went back to testing. Um, you won't want to go to Test Bash anymore. And um, I, I found that equal parts insulting and um, frustrating, actually, 
you know, those building up those fences of of uh, or silos of if you're this thing, then you would only go to, I don't know, project management talks or something, um, and not testing or not anything to do with with I don't know coding. Um, whereas I very much encourage anyone who knows me that that I work with knows how much I encourage um, team collaborations and learning from each other. Um, and uh, yeah, that that was a particular part that that um, the reason why I spoke about that. But also, um, yeah, from the get go, from that first project back in New Zealand, I've always really enjoyed the you know working on projects with teams in different disciplines or, or or people in different disciplines, whether they're BAs or developers, project managers, all of that. So I I I guess it's a matter close to my heart. Yeah, certainly. We talked at the beginning about you know, things we got into over lockdown. I think I binged a lot of conference talks on YouTube from those that were available. But, you know, I've seen a lot of the testing ones over the years. So I spent a lot of time binging talks from dev conferences and I, sure. I learned a load of really useful things from, from, from developer-focused conferences. Um, certainly, and I, and I hate to, to keep banging the drum, but but there, there has historically certainly been a bit of a tension between developers and testers. And there are certain people online who will tut and say that's not a thing anymore or it was never a thing. But again, we've, we've been around the block. We, we've seen situations where <laughs> there's been hostility and and, and, uh, and rough times there, right? Yes, it, uh, it is a fascinating topic. I mean, I, I'm quite drawn to the kind of human aspects of of projects as well and and software development or any team actually um i like reading books on sport when it's about the kind of you know the the, the team mentality getting over the line the, the the management approach is not just the the quality of the football or whatever um and the same goes with software development I, and there are different personalities there with different perspectives and different um objectives i guess uh, as i said before i i do love it when you know, Agile brings these together to some degree. So <clears throat> try to encourage the, the team approach to um, getting a feature done. It's not just develop it and then test it. It is you know, deliver the feature and you guys do that together. Um, but as someone who's been a Scrum Master and has been the line manager for developers and testers, and then, you know, uh, managed several teams in a program, I used to run Scrum and Scrums every week, you know, for the last two or three years. Only with my new role will I stop doing that. Um, but it is, it is, you know, fascinating to see different people come at it with different perspectives. Um, and uh, I have also seen in the teams where um, where the developers help out with testing. So, you know, you, you may get. I saw a great experience or a great example where. Uh, I saw I heard a developer say to the, the tester, the primary tester on the team, um, well, you've raised this bug, but you know, it, there's no mention of that in the acceptance criteria. And so that was his defense. Um, then the same developer was actually helping out with the testing while the tester was on holiday. And he raised the bug that wasn't in the acceptance criteria. And the, 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 the developer of the code gave him the same challenge. Now that this this dev was wearing a, a testing hat, you know he was in a different position. So I think there's always going to be a slightly different, um, a bit of a rub between the two. But hopefully it's a healthy thing. Yeah, the, the, uh, there's, there's always yeah. It, it, again, a lot of this there's always going to be um, 
confusion particularly around requirements but a lot of it is 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 how you handle that situation like in the situation you describe it would be very easy to snap back and say ha see you did it too or you could say <laughs> we've both learned here you know there, there is there is from flexibility within the gaps between requirements but um yeah a lot of both working as a, a colleague within an agile team as well as managing people within an agile team a lot of it is a lot of it's practicing empathy. Um, you may also describe it as like managing egos because that certainly is something that he's doing. No one likes to be told, uh, you know, that there was a problem with the thing that you did or uh, you missed something that's now gone out into the wild. Um, and he, even I, I've always tried to be someone who, who's, I've always tried to be the best tester possible, I, I guess you would say. Okay. But even when you try to do that, sometimes you, you can you can mismanage relationships in that way. Like when I used to work for Oracle many years ago, I, I was in a test team that was, I think I, I was one of the more senior slash experienced slash better people within the test team. Uh, but that meant that anytime one of the, the developers saw me walking over to their desk, they would just freeze up because they were like, shit, Neil's coming. Something must be really badly wrong. Or like, oh God, he's going to have found something really horrible. Like I needed to learn to be better at, you know, at managing those relationships and, you know, talking to people in the good times as well as the bad times so that I wasn't like the, you know, um, Grim Reaper walking over towards their desk. <laughs> Well, I'm sure um, I do know what you mean. I, I got a compliment early on in my career, probably the first or second project I had in New Zealand, where the business analyst said to me, the fact that you're talking to me means that you found something. Um, and she said it nicely. It was a, it was a compliment. Um, and looking back, you know, she was an excellent business analyst. Um, but uh, yes, I understand that. And I do remember another time that a guy said to me, um, the word defect is so cold, isn't it? And uh, I thought it was quite funny. It's just a word. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I did the ISTQB training in the beginning when 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 I got a job in New Zealand and they, they put me on that course. And these were just things I was taught. So, yes, I, did, I didn't really attach any emotion to the word. It was yeah. just a thing that you you raised when you we found an issue. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we do have to, to watch how we communicate with people. Uh, and particularly, obviously, nowadays, it's, it's harder now that we're all remote. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about remote working in the next section. But we're at the hump point of the podcast. It's time to hear about your third song, Simon. Marvellous. OK, so this is the wonderful Penguin Cafe Orchestra with a song which I think is pronounced as Perpetuum Mobile. Um, so, yeah, this, this is going to show my age again, but this does... This album that this is on reminds me of um, which what was very much a hobby of mine at the time of buying CDs. Um, so I think it was about 1995 or something. I was still at uni then. I must I, I did some summer work and had some money to spend, but I did like buying music. Um, sometimes I'd buy several albums at once. And I, I, I to this day I remember buying this um, from a shop and uh, sort of near the beach in Bournemouth and. Um, I bought Doolittle by the Pixies the same day. Um, very different albums. Most of my music I was into at that time would have been quite grungy. Penguin Cafe Orchestra, definitely not. I, I bought it based on the, on the album cover. I'd never even heard a word, you know, a note by them. Um, but was so intrigued by the, the band name and the the the, uh, the, the cover. Um, and yeah, I still like them today. Um, when I I don't play music when I'm running anymore because of, um, I'm trying to you know um, save my hearing as much as I can and stuff but I also found that I actually found running quite oddly um, more enjoyable not playing music but when I did I used to love playing this it was quite a, a serene song it's also good for testing it's good good background music for testing 
Um, I don't often get to play music while I'm working, but uh, this is I, I recommend trying this out if you if you like it. Um, it's also I know you're big into films, Neil. Um, there was one that I saw in Wellington at a film festival called Mary and Max, which is a animated film by an Australian guy called Adam Elliott. And um, it's a wonderful film. And I was delighted. I watched it in a, in a great cinema called The Embassy in Wellington. And uh, this song features throughout, it's an instrumental piece, it features oh. throughout the film and it just made the film even more brilliant for me. Um, but on top of all that, uh, the, the primary reason I'm choosing it is, uh, like many, I'm dedicating a song to my wedding day and to my wife. Um, I got married on Bournemouth Beach to Claire in 2016. It was the same weekend as my 40th birthday. Bournemouth is my favourite town in the whole world. And um, this was the song that Claire walked down the aisle to, the very beginning of the song. And uh, we, we got married on a Friday, and it's in the middle of July. Um, Bournemouth Beach, you know, is notoriously busy. When the weather's amazing. It was not amazing that day, but it was all right. So, and it was really calm. It meant no one was on the beach. And that moment when I saw Claire walking down the aisle, um, you know, and I thought I'd be really nervous on the wedding day, but this song came on. She looked great. The weather was amazing. And I was in my favorite place in the world. So I wasn't nervous, just very happy. the wonderful sounds of penguin cafe orchestra with perpetuum mobile perfect background music for testing it will be on the test design and disc spotify playlist with everyone else's songs that playlist probably a bit of a weird one to have on shuffle if you're testing it's going to be quite a bit of whiplash on the, that playlist we're talking before that about how we're all working remotely at the moment and one of the challenges is how you collaborate when you're doing that i'm always someone who historically has given talks at conferences and stuff about how much i enjoy things like mob programming when you're in an office you know getting six or seven people around a desk on one keyboard and being in the zone that sort of thing is not it's not impossible to do remote but it's reliant on a lot of things particularly everyone being in an environment with good internet connection where they're not going to get interrupted and where you know you've got decent headphones and stuff there's just a certain amount of friction related to doing this stuff digitally isn't there there is um i think so one of the things i i've used an awful lot in the last couple of years uh, if you can name check at all i know it's a popular one is slack and um we're sort of moving over to microsoft teams but i on a i do find that i'm of i am an overzealous slack user i think um you know uh, communicating by message tools I, I probably did too much, um, but I did find that very, very useful for a team. And, uh, you know, yes, they would join calls when they could. Um, but one thing I particularly didn't like, you know, one aspect of this is is when I find that team, uh, a couple of people within a team have had long conversations by themselves. So they've figured everything out between them, but not <laughs> then communicated it to the team or the program or to me. Um, but we'd have an honest conversation about this. Things like scrum scrums and sprint reviews, retrospectives were, were great um, ways of sort of teasing out this this problem. Um, and each team's some some found 
I encourage people to put their videos on, you know, so we can actually see each other. Um, great for body language. Yes, you know, there are people that um, tend to dominate the conversations, whether you're in the office or not. And, uh, you know, we, we would, again, it's coming back to that human element of saying, well, we haven't heard anything from so-and-so. Um, you know, do you, I, I could perhaps, as the as a scrum master or scrum as scrum's master, um, you know, try and put the spotlight on those people uh, rather than uh, particular people hogging things. Um, yeah, so there, it, I've definitely been working from home, you know, for the last 1.75 years or however <laughs> long it is. Um, I am keen to get back into the office and we're encouraging, you know, people to start doing that sort of blended model where they come back um, and, and try and find that right balance because, it's not so much that I think you can't solve problems at home. A lot of people love doing things with whiteboards, and now there's great tools for this. Um, but I, I really do um, think a lot of the, you know, the ability to 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 work together uh, in a room. I I, I truly uh, think that is uh, yeah. something that that still wins. Yeah, I have a, a real love-hate relationship with with Slack. I mean, I think it even describes itself as a productivity tool, but it can sometimes oh, feel like it's, it's, sapping, it's sapping your productivity <laughs> away. Um, I certainly, I had this the same problem at Postman, and I'm trying to avoid it in my new role, is that, as you say, like having public channels or channels that you can browse in the directory is great. But yeah, how many of these private channels are there where there are important conversations happening that you're not part of? Uh, that again, like you say, it wouldn't happen in a real office. You wouldn't get two people walking off unnoticed and going and putting the world to rights. You know, you'd notice that those two people have been at their desk for an hour. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not about, you know, watching people seeing what they're up to. It's about, you know, as you said, in the previous section, the whole team approach to um, collaborating and working together, which is really hard to do um, when you don't know where the conversations are happening. Um, as someone who spent a, a lot of their working life in New Zealand, I, I guess you must have also found the time zone challenge. And unless you're only working with people in New Zealand, um, it's a long way away from be able to have overlap with other people? Yes, I was quite lucky. Um, I did a lot of work with Australian teams, but obviously they, the difference wasn't much there, two to three hours. So um, I, it, what, a couple of the projects I did uh, worked in the sort of credit card world for quite some time um, were with some uh, uh, Visa and MasterCard teams and, and they were with, with Indian teams often and one with, with Amex. Uh, so funnily enough, um, yeah, one of the last projects I did before I moved back in 2013, I was on calls to Brighton and um, <laughs> the, the, um, the, the lady that was managing the, the project from, that, from the Brighton side, she was doing late night calls and we would be joining first thing in the morning um, so I, I was a little lucky there, actually, that uh, I, didn't, I didn't struggle with the time zones too much. Yeah, I don't think it's a challenge that's going to go away anytime soon. I think that the world is moving towards a let's all be remote, let's be anywhere model uh, for, for better or worse. We're going to go on and talk in the final section about another topic that's hot on my mind right now, which is automation and particularly managing the process of creating automation. But before we do that, your penultimate song choice. Uh, so this is um, Underworld, and essentially it's um, King of Snake. I say that because it's actually called Shudder slash King of Snake. It's a live um, version. Um, so I, I, I describe myself as, you know, my, my primary music tastes are kind of guitar-based and indie rock, probably, something like that. Um, but I did develop a, a, a big love of electronic music. Maybe it's always been there, going back to the Craftworks thing, age seven. Um, but certainly, 
Um, I went to a lot of gigs and festivals in my early 20s and late teens, I suppose. Um, and seeing the Prodigy live was definitely a something of a, a game changer around the Firestarter time. Um, and then I think you could call me a, something of a, a clubber and a raver for a few years. Um, some of it was, you know, the, the Prodigy and Underworld, Chemical Brothers bands like that, there, there's very much a rock influence there, including the people that go to see them. Um, but I was very much also into the into the true clubbing world of Carl Cox and into Ibiza. My my, my um, honeymoon after the Bournemouth Beach wedding was in Ibiza, um, a 40th birthday wedding combo. Um, so I do do very much love um, electronic music. Um, and aside from the Phoenix Foundation, I've probably seen Underworld live more than any other band. Um, they are they, they really are a stadium act and they're, they're a great show. This particular track, um, you can find this on YouTube, the actual, it, I think the album's called Everything Everything. Um, and the, the live version of this, uh, it's great to watch as well as listen to. Um, and a lot of people only know Underworld for Born Slippy from the Train Spotting um, film. Um, I think their albums are fantastic. They're way more experimental and instrumental. Um, not as shouty as Born Slippy, um, but yes, uh, very much one of my favorite bands. Live from Brussels there, that was Underworld with Shudder, King of Snake, uh, taken originally from the album Boku Fish, which came out in 1999, which I know because that was a studio album that was massively important to me. There are certain albums that take you back to a certain time in your life, and that album was 1999 for me. It's, it's such a warm summer feel on that album. Uh, the opening track is like 10 minutes called Cups. Uh, Push Upstairs was a really, a really, a very born slippy style song uh, from that album. But otherwise, it was very, very, uh, it was a real summer vibe on that album. Uh, Give me goosebumps to even saying that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So in this final section, I'd like to throw another one of Neil's massive questions that he's dealing with at work right now into the mix. So one of my big focuses in my new role, uh, unsurprisingly, like a lot of companies, is the drive to get more automation um, within within the team. Uh, and that's largely it's it's good spirited. It's we want to release more frequently, but more safely. Uh, but obviously in doing that, it puts certain onuses on the testing team that perhaps weren't there before. Um these are very big questions to ask, but what are your feelings for, you know, where automation sits within the team? What sort of people within the team should be responsible for owning it? How involved should the testers even be at all? Yeah, they are big questions, but they're <laughs> the right ones because yeah, when I'd I like start... To, just, just, yeah, can you give me yeah. just the, the perfect answer, please? <laughs> <laughs> and then away we go with our head of QA roles. Yeah, I mean, when I start work next week, this is the sort of thing that most people are going to be expecting me to focus on. Um, and yeah, I have I have you know mixed feelings about it because it's not the be all and end all, but um, and it's a personal thing as well. I, I don't have a big history in um, technical testing uh, of any degree. You know, um, very much from the manual testing, testing requirements using a UI kind of world. However, I've been using Postman for the last three or four years, 
Um, I, I wasn't a, a you know a computer science grad or anything. Um, so so learning to code even in a, a small example like that has been a, a wonderful journey actually. Um, very empowering, hard. Um, I've used some of my own time to you know to try and to try and develop in that in that way. Um, but it's increased my confidence in understanding um, what automation can bring and the pitfalls of it too. Um, and you know, as a manager, as I have been for the last three years in in delivery and managing um, dev teams uh, with with testers in in, in them too. Um, how long a project takes or, or a piece of work, whether it's, you know, say an automation project to build some Selenium scripts or something, uh, but, you know, to actually implement a framework around it too. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, the, I, get, I often get people saying to me, we need more automation. And they don't even say what kind of automation they mean. <laughs> um, and I've, I've experienced this in other places. It isn't just my, my company, my current company. Um, it's a, it's a bit buzzwordy to say we need more automation. Um, I totally understand that, yes, it means safer releases, but it comes at a cost as well. And I seem to be the person always playing devil's advocate with, with, with that particular part. I think that's the thing. Yeah, automation shouldn't be done half-heartedly. You want to do it properly. You, you want to give it the same respect as, as production code. But but like you say, any time spent producing that, particularly if it's done by the testers who normally have their eyes on the product, it's taking their eyes off the product. And that's one of the, the big challenges I'm trying to overcome right now is the drive to get testers more involved with automation, but also we're still trying to ship things. and We, we still need to yes. understand what we're shipping them and whether it's safe to do so. And I'll be honest, I've seen a couple of slide decks already uh, that have triggered me a little bit where they're talking about the goal of being, you know, 100% test coverage. Now, I think yeah. I know what they think they mean, which is <laughs> anything that can sensibly be automated, um, such as that it doesn't consume time to be done manually, is worth doing. Uh, and I, I think I need to just do a little bit of alignment to understand what they want and how they want to do it and how they want to resource that. Oh God, I'm doing all the manager speak already, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's, and one of the also more, most important things is regardless of, of skill sets or whatever, it's, it's not what everyone wants to do. It's not what everyone got into testing for. I had an experience a few years ago where I coached someone, frankly, relatively well in giving them the skills that it needed to write effective automation. I brought up their postman skills and that sort of thing. Um, and they chose to move on from that role because that wasn't why they got into testing, that they weren't sure. doing the work that they enjoyed anymore. I effectively helped to sap their passion by teaching them about loads of other stuff, which was <laughs> a, a failing on my part. But um, yeah, like you say, I think the, the real challenge is, yeah, how do you avoid focus over-focusing on automation when you know you still want to ship quality software? It's a very good point. I, I've been to a couple of talks, um, one from yourself in Brighton and then a, a couple of others. I, I know you were, you were there where I, I think, uh, I, um, I don't think I have imposter syndrome, but I do have, an, a bit, I, I can be underconfident in things. Maybe it's the same thing. Uh, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up um, with an interest in computer science or computers and uh, I've only learned to do any kind of coding in my mid-30s onwards. Um, I I can definitely be intimidated by those like yourself who I find, you know, extremely competent. And I can see this in others now, actually. I, I've i been trying to create a, with, with help from a, a colleague, um, a postman training exercise in the context of our company and our microservices. Um, 
three years ago, the idea that I would actually be writing this is was crazy. Um, I can see the same level of intimidation in the people that I manage um, because I've gone quite deep into this uh, and, and truly loved it. You're right, not, not everybody will, will feel that. <laughs> not everyone will want to do extra hours sometimes to, to practice writing test scripts and things. Um, and that's on me to to manage that. And I, again, I'm going to say that you know I, I think I often get asked um, over the past few years, who do I think owns the automated testing? If we stick on mm. API testing for a minute, um, I think my answer generally is I think it's a great thing for the because we work in Scrum teams. You know, a dev team includes testing resource. Um, they are one team. I think it's a great thing for the primary tester in the team to lead with, but I very much encourage the devs to support it and, and for it to be a team commitment because I've learned so much from developers who've helped me get going with, with Postman. And now I've got some confidence to try some things and try writing some JavaScript and things that I never would have thought two years ago. Um, and I've got enough confidence now to ask devs to to help me out with it and they they of course come up with better ways um but you know we we can we can bounce off each other there i think testers are surprisingly better at deciding what things to test in those microservice tests and um sometimes i don't think the developers target the best data or the best um yeah the best scenarios so so bringing those skills together is is brilliant uh, so I don't know if I'm avoiding the question by saying that it's, it's a collective responsibility, but I, I think testers and developers can do, both have different roles to serve the same purpose yeah. in a team. It's certainly on point for a lot of our discussion uh, today in terms of, of collaboration and the many different roles that contribute towards building software. And yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong with imposter syndrome. I mean, I, I flinched a little bit when you you described me as having a level of ex expertise. That, that's not something that I, I am ever particularly comfortable hearing, but the reverse <laughs> is having like unchecked confidence, which, which can't be a good thing. So I think it's great that we're uh, always focusing on uh, what we can do and what we want to do better. And it sounds like you've been on, on quite a journey. Um, we're going to finish up now with your fifth and final song choice and it's a band who are being picked on the podcast for the fifth time marvelous so <clears throat> perhaps predictably in some ways i mean it'd be a common thing for the beatles to be chosen but my song choice will be less common probably um it's sexy sadie um they are my favorite band ever and i've heard lots of people on desert island discs say that as well um my mum amongst her record collection has quite a lot of beatles singles and some greatest hits albums or something um and as a teenager probably when i was still in that sort of top 40 you know listening to the charts on a sunday um kind of age i bought sergeant pepper for about 99p on tape or something um but i couldn't get on with it it was too soon and then two or three years later i was at university and th there was an anthology series that came out and it was on tv and then they released three double albums that came with it and I, that was the right time. I'd already gone into sort of Pearl Jam mode by this time and was getting into more sort of alternative stuff and Pink Floyd and starting to, you know, discover all this amazing music that happened before 1984. <laughs> and um, now, yeah, that really was uh, a good time to, to get into the Beatles. So I, I kind of bought everything by them. And um, 
with the white album so sexy sadie is on uh the white album and um i'm guessing a fair few listeners do know that album um but you know in testing we talk a lot about context and i'm a big fan of that in in music and everything else as well like i love the context of when the beatles made the white album because they kind of didn't like each other by then and their their album before that had been Sgt. Pepper, which was this incredibly grandiose semi-concept album with that amazing cover. First album to put the lyrics in the sleeves, allegedly this sort of thing, um, you know, and it is a classic. The White Album is 30 tracks over two, um, two vinyl records or two CD discs. Um, and it is a real hodgepodge of music. It's probably not their most perfect album for sure. But I love it because of that, you know, this idea that they didn't really like each other and they're banging out songs like that. Um, I, I, I love it for that. Um, they moved such a, a long way from where they started in 1962, within six years. Um, I, I did a, I like doing lists. It's probably because of my love of the charts and things. I, I did a top 100 songs of my own in, in uh, 2010 when I was still in New Zealand and this was my number one. And if I did a, did a, um, a list today, this would still be number one. From the White Album there, that was Sexy Sadie by the Beatles. I really hope one day someone's going to come on and pick Revolution 9 from, from the White Album. <laughs> That's a song that's needed on, on the playlist. It's, a, it's an experimental album, to say the least. And that wraps up your five songs today, Simon. The other thing you're allowed to bring with you to the island is a book of your choice to keep you company while you're marooned. Uh, what have you decided to bring with you? So like all of the song choices, I overthought this somewhat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I nearly went for a detective novel because um, during lockdown, my wife and I have been doing the shopping for a couple of elderly neighbours and one who's in her 90s, we've become particularly good friends with and her and I started something of a book um, swap and um, she reads quite a lot of um, kind of crime or detective novels, um, particularly Peter James novels, um, uh, his books are based around Brighton. Um, so it's a bit of a double win because I, I've, I found the whole detective novel uh, sort of format and, and structure a very analytical thing and very enjoyable. Um, it's good stories there. Um, but also the fact that they're based around Brighton was great um, because, you know, I, I could relate to all of these places and I, I very much like his books now. Um, however, uh, I, I then analysed that and thought I would get bored of this book on a desert <laughs> island. Um, and so I've gone instead, uh, I'm applying some artistic license here, art being the, the operative word. I'd like um, to actually create my own kind of scrapbook of, of um, pictures of famous art and some descriptions behind them um, explaining the art. Um, I haven't really found the right book that would, you know, that we could put on Goodreads that would, would uh, really encapsulate this. I, I've, I've always enjoyed art. Um, I suppose it's a bit like the my, my Beatles comment with the White Album. I love the context of it as well. Um, the descriptions behind, you know, why why a particular painting was done 
at a time, you know, in a, in the artist's life. Um, so to name check a few, Jackson Pollock is my favorite artist. Um, and, you know, he, he was an alcoholic and died age 44 in a car crash. So it's not all happy. Um, his work is spectacular in terms of scale. And I, I'm very drawn to the abstract stuff, particularly. Yeah, so uh, I particularly like the work of John Constable, um, who, um, this sounds a little bit sad uh, as a story again, but he he grew up in um, in Suffolk and uh, he and his wife moved to Brighton when his wife was getting, getting sick in their later years. Um, they thought the sea air would be good for her. Um, Constable's work became quite quite dark and quite abstract, and I found that utterly fascinating. So not so good for the constables, but um, very enjoyable and amazing art for for me. Um, and yes, as I say, it's the context of the the, the art as, as well as the pieces themselves that you learn something new every time you look at them. Um, so to have a book of of, of all these amazing pieces um, and the the stories behind them would just be be great on a desert island yeah as as guardian of the island i'm going to allow it can can i picture a situation (laughs) where you would have gone off on a cruise on a boat and taken a book of your favorite art with you yeah i could see that happening if you're a fan of art particularly you know you clearly got very vivid tales of them so let's say that happened uh we obviously can't add it to goodreads uh but that's the price you pay for getting to pick what you want so uh we'll allow it uh thank you very much (laughs) thank you very much for for talking to me today simon it's been fantastic if people would like to get hold of you and talk more uh offline or online but not on the podcast where are the best places to do that um yeah so one I, I do have something of a new year's resolution to be more active on twitter and the likes i mean the people that come before me on this podcast are a bunch of rock stars and um <laughs> in the testing world and i, I can't claim the same but uh, I, I wonder where people sometimes find the time to do so many community things but i i, I especially with my new role i do want to be more active in the community um, so I would love people to to reach out, and I will reach out to others. Um, my Twitter handle is <laughs> I'm not even sure what it is. I think it's the <laughs> underscore Riggler. Uh, um, yeah, sorry, the <laughs> underscore Riggler. And uh, it's about time I updated my picture as well because it's really not very professional. It's me holding a football, wearing a Bournemouth shirt. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, I hope you will hear more of me in the in, in this new year. Fabulous. Well, I will uh, double and triple check your Twitter name and pop that in the show notes with all the links about things we talked about today. Um, I myself am taking a bit of a Twitter break at the moment, but if you were to go to Tester's Island account on Twitter, uh, you'll find out how to get in touch with the show um, and how to apply to be a guest. If you'd like to be one, be one. we're looking for, for more people for 2022. Uh, and you set a very high standard to begin with, Simon. Thank you ever so much for coming on today. Thank you, Neil. It's a real pleasure. Take care. And I'll see everyone else at the end of February. Where the hell is this year going already? I'll see you all soon. (laughs) Bye. Testers Island Discs is brought to you by Ministry of Testing. Written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Green Day. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island.